Hello, Jeroen. Hello, Dylan. And uh, today we have another return guest. We've got Mario Rajic here with us to talk about the 1.0 release of Lambdera. Uh, Mario, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, folks. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I've been uh, I've been looking forward to this one really since we started the podcast. Yeah, the Lambdera is just one of those things in in the Elm space for me that makes me go like that is why Elm is amazing because the the purity of Elm lets you do mad science like this and it's actually <laughs> not like that surprising. It's just pure functions, you know. So. I feel like Lambdera is one of these really cool things that like seems like it should be like it, it, it's such a big promise that it seems like it should be difficult to wrap your head around and complicated. But I think that it's actually deceptively simple. And once you realize how simple it is, then you understand it. So can can you try to give us your like distilled down version of like what is Lambdera at its core, and and why is it interesting for developing applications? Sure. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, uh, maybe I have to start with the... Uh, I'll try to start with the concise version, because the, <laughs> the long version is probably quite long, and the concise version might not be that concise. I guess in, 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 in short, in short, at least the way that I think about Lambdera, and I think the way that I pitch it is... is um, Lambda is about cutting out complexity. I it's a low. I feel like it's just a really loaded way to explain that because I think every single package that ever existed and every single CMS tried to make the same claim, right? And and yeah. and when uh, so when I'm trying to say that with Lambda, maybe a nicer way to is to say like cutting out non-essential complexity. And when I say non-essential, I mean that maybe in like a slightly more formal sense to say like, well, I I I. I spoke about um, this concept, and there's a, probably like a, a more a more eloquent explanation uh, through the conference talk that I gave at uh, Elm Europe announcing Lambda. Mm -hmm. um, but, but basically, when when I talk about like like the essential complexity, and I'm thinking about essential complexity in a web app specifically, like a full stack web app, the way I think of it in my head is like there's stuff that happens for the client in the front end, you know, stuff that's happening in their browser, right? And then there's stuff that happens on the server in the back end, right? Like things that only happen there, like maybe like a scheduled job, things that alter its state, right? And then there's information that goes from the client to the back end, just at a conceptual level, like there's data that's passed that way. And then there's information that goes from the back end to the client, right? So they're, they're like the four kind of things. And so they're, they're the four things that happen, I would argue. And then there's two sets of knowledge that exist, right? Like the client knows what it knows, and then the back end knows what it knows. So they're those kind of six concepts. And it took a really long time for me to get to this level of thinking. There was like a whole set of iterations in between that had all sorts of other moving components. But as I kind of refined and figured out that like the complexity thing was the thing I was trying to solve, it just kind of became clearer and clearer, like that these were the things that you could boil it down to. And I don't think you get any simpler than that. Like I haven't, I haven't figured out any way. There is, um, there is an argument to say that maybe, uh, maybe what goes to the client, uh, sorry, maybe the inf information that goes between the two could be considered as one thing if it was like a request response dynamic. But I argue, I argue not really because the, the, like 
the backend has to know how to respond. So fundamentally, I'm saying like the backend has to have, like both of them have to have knowledge of the thing that's going back and forth between them in both directions, right? I have to know what you're going to ask me, but I have to also know concretely what I'm going to respond with and, and that, that, that that's something reasonable for you to handle, right? I can ignore it and make it your responsibility, but either way, it's an implicit contract between the two. So what is Lambda? Lambda is Elm applied to those core principles and like, that's it, right? The idea is that when you build your app, you literally build it just in terms of those principles and nothing else. So when I say nothing else, uh, I mean, there's like li literally nothing else. So it's not like, oh, well, we're going to communicate with HTTP, you know, over a JSON thing. So let's drag in all the HTTP semantics. Let's drag in the notion of failure. Let's drag in the notion of HTTP status codes. Let's drag in the notion of, um, you know, streaming or HTTP2, like the protocol levels. Let's drag in the notion of, you know, whether we're using JSON schema, like how we're transforming, like none of those things. The idea is to just be like, look, you know, do you want to send some stuff to the backend? Cool. Here's a send to backend. You give it an Elm value. Like that's it. Lambda does the rest. Do you want to send some stuff to the front end? Cool. Well, here's send to front end. Just all you need is a client ID to, to know who you're sending it to. And then you give it an Elm value and that Elm value just materializes in the front end. Um, and then the same thing, uh, perhaps more extremely, I think this is where lots of people get confused. I say, you know, Lambda has no database, you know, because that's another, that's another external kind of thing. So instead, how does it work? Well, it works the same way if you understand how an Elm program works on the front end. You know, you have an update function, you process a message, and then you return a new model, right? You have the existing model, you return a new model. And and so my thinking was, well, what if it just worked exactly the same way in the back end? You know, there's no database, it's just the model is your database. It's your source of truth. Let's drop the word database for a moment and just think about like, what is, what is your data full stop? Mm. Yeah, I don't know how good an explanation yeah. that is, but hopefully that gives some words to it. I feel like we're missing one thing is like, what is Lambda used for? Like, I feel like we missed about uh, missed the explanation around uh, Lambda is a pair of front-end and back-end uh, systems all merged into one and made very simple. Yeah, so I would say that Lambda is a full-stack platform for building delightful web apps. Um, <laughs> meaning that, yeah, you, you write Elm uh, in a single code base um, where everything type checks together, your front end and your back end. And then when you deploy, uh, Lambda basically splits your front end and splits your back end, um, provides all of the infrastructure and the, uh, the deployment pipeline and the hosting to then make that work in production as a, as a full stack app where, you know, the, the client gets the normal kind of web page loaded. The back end exists separately. The back end has persistence. And it, yeah, it functions like you would expect a, a full stack app to function, but it's just Elm. You know, it's purely, purely Elm end to end. Um, and then, you know, thus shunts some of the, the kind of um, Elm expectations you have. So, you know, no runtime errors uh, in practice. If you change your types, you know, you, if you change your types in the back end, you'll get compiler errors for the front end. Yeah. All that, all that kind of really nice stuff from Elm. Yeah, it's it's essentially like what if uh, what if communicating with the backend was not an HTTP request command, but rather just a message. You just send a uh, you you just send data, and it automatically knows how to serialize it for you under the hood. And so, like you know, there there's uh, I hear a lot of talk these days about like this backlash against microservice architectures that actually like you're taking this thing that you had this easy to understand system, this nice co-located system where it had these 
background jobs and these endpoints. And then suddenly you've turned it into something that's difficult to understand because it turns into like a Rube Goldberg machine. So to me, I, I it feels like Lambda is a monolith, but it's like not just horizontally, but vertically. It's a full stack monolith. So, and and what would happen, what simplicity would emerge from collapsing together the front end and back end code into one code base? So not only do they share code, not only are they written in the same language, but it is actually the same code. It shares the same types. And uh, basically, like actually from, from reading your uh, docs on uh, the Lambda dashboard, which there's like a lot of really good insights in there, like the, the big headline for me seems to be, hey, we spend so much time writing glue code. And also, we have such a fear of changing things because of glue code. And in fact, you know, Elm makes it easier to deal with glue code because we feel that it's more safe to do so. And things like Elm GraphQL can help give you confidence there, types without borders, you know. But what if we didn't even need that? Because that's still a layer of things where things can go wrong, where there's extra work, where there's our, our cognitive load is going to those problems, which aren't also, actually problems. Where you also need to learn new technologies like yeah. GraphQL, a new backend language. Right. All that yeah, stuff. exactly. You try to get a more elegant ORM for updating things in the database and doing SQL queries in a higher level way. What if it was just declarative and there was no glue, like literally it's just like, to me, Lambda is the answer to the question, like, could you use Elm to completely declaratively write things and eliminate glue code? So there's no, you, you just declaratively say, I have this data in the back end, this data in the front end, this is how they change. And then all the glue code emerges from that declarative description. Absolutely. So uh, glue code I've found is really I found it really difficult to talk about glue code because it it, mm -hmm. it may mean different things to different people. And I know you guys like definitions, so maybe we go on a little tangent with <laughs> definition of glue code. Yeah. So this, I I really struggle with with this. I I I feel like this is a thing that should be exist and should be formally described somewhere, and it'd be mm. awesome. Maybe maybe by virtue of doing this podcast, someone will message me finally and be like, "Hey, it's called." Blah blah blah, and you, you completely missed it. But I like I've been struggling to find a term for this. I had I just had to invent one, like the whole you know Ludwig Wittgenstein thing, right? The limit of my language is the limit of my world, right? Yeah. So I'm like, okay, so I I've been calling it semantic boundaries, um, uh, because as I was trying to figure out like this complexity thing, I I I, I was kind of more and more stumbling across little things, and then eventually I felt like I got enough things, and it kind of clicked what like what the source of the complexity that I'm talking about was, right? So I think essential complexity is hard to deal with because like it basically means like whatever your business rules are doing and how they change. And like, that's like, that's a whole skill set of a developer, right? Like you applying your technical kind of mind against your business stuff. And like, there's just so many reasons why that can go wrong. Like there can be political reasons or process reasons or, you know, things change over time. And, you know, suddenly you realize the system that you built on certain assumptions is gone. And that's like, I'm not talking about that kind of complexity, right? That's how I don't think that's solvable. And I think that's our job, right? Uh, like in, in perpetuity, right. the, the complexity I'm talking about, I started now to recognize as what I call semantic boundaries. And now that I've called it that and figured out what it means, suddenly I can't unsee it anywhere. And <laughs> it's really upsetting. And so what it is basically is when I say semantic boundaries, I'm talking about any boundary you have where on one side of the fence, the set of 
things for how you describe how that thing works is different in any way, even like if it's really subtly different from something on the other side of the fence. So like one I would give um, is say you're going to make a HTTP request, right? There's at least two really clear boundaries for me there. First thing you're going to be like, usually, at least in my thinking in a language, I'm going to be like, okay, cool. What am I going to use as a data layer? And like, what, what, what encoding am I going to use? Say normally you reach for JSON, right? JSON is usually going to be uh, either, a, if you're lucky, a subset, but probably not. Probably it's like a, um, it's like a Venn diagram overlap with whatever the thing is that you're encoding, right? So Elm values, like an integer, yeah, okay, we can put that straight into JSON. A float, probably a dictionary. Okay, well, now I have to choose how I'm transforming this dictionary into a representation in JSON, right? That is glue code, right? Because that, that is code that is entirely, entirely about converting between the semantics of those two things, right? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, I believe it doesn't serve any value other than that. And maybe my position on why I feel so strongly about that will become clearer as we go on. So let's say then now you're taking this JSON and you're putting it into HTTP. That it, like more subtly is a semantic boundary, right? Because you say, well, what can they represent? Well, you'd like everything, right? It doesn't matter. HTTP doesn't care. You put whatever you want in the payload. Well, no, because JSON doesn't have the concept of a 404, right? Like there's no like, if you, like you have your JSON blob, there's no like, there's no like, oh, I read my JSON file from disk and I got a 500 internal server. You know, like that doesn't happen. That only happens when you go through HTTP. So what you're dragging in is you're dragging in all of the HTTP semantics now, right? They're on top. And so even though you're not explicitly formatting your JSON, the boundary there is that you have to handle these semantics in your program now, right? And your program could get a 404. It could get a 500. It could get a 382. What's a 382, Dylan? No idea. Have to go to Google. Have to Keep find up? that out. No. Why is this crashing in Bugsnap? You know, like it's it's it's. This is something six months from now you're going to be like, why? Why did this happen? Um, right. And so I, I yeah, I, on the Lambda kind of features page, I have this big diagram that tries to show that with a full, like yeah. a classical full step out. And so when I'm talking about glue code, that's what I'm talking about. It's not glue code like. Oh, you know, we have to access, like, we just have no choice. We have to access a third party a HTTP API, you know, and like, I have to write code for that. I'm not being like, kill all third party. <laughs> you know, I'm not saying like, oh, you shouldn't right. do anything. I'm saying that's, that's essential to me because you have to talk to mm-hmm. that person, mm-hmm. right? Where it's, I think, not yeah. essential is when you're doing it without your system. And then, you know, we get a lot of people, um, they will ask me, be like, oh, well, you know, what about like, you know, if some third party wants to query stuff, like now that format's closed and you can't get, I'm like, yeah, those things are true. And if that's what you need, then it's no longer glue code, right? If that is like concretely part of your requirements that you have to serve an API to someone, well, then you got to, you're probably forced to take on those problems. And then, you know, it becomes a political thing. If you can't like in your company, if you can't influence that third party to do it a certain way or do, you know, they demand it or maybe it's contractual or whatever it is. Well, that's fine. Like you, if you have to use HTTP and JSON, those things exist and, you know, we have to do them. Um, but really like the root, like, so if we, if we kind of boil down to the root of where Lambda started and what kind of goal I keep my eyes kind of honed on is I wanted to see what it was like to have a system where you could cut out all of that essential complexity and what that would look like. Um, and that, the inspiration really for that was Elm, you know, like Evan made a really bold thing by being like, what would it look like if we didn't have 
inline JavaScript. And a lot of people mm-hmm. seem to be like, that's crazy. You can never do it. Like we right. need FFI. Right. And I'm like, no, maybe you don't. You know, what, yeah. what would happen? What would happen if you didn't? What would it be like? And that's like, that's the, yeah, the guiding star for Lambda at the moment. Right. Make a, make a bold assumption and see what, what follows from that. And yeah, Lambda feel, really feels like that. Uh, and uh, it, it makes me think of like, I can't remember if, if you've mentioned this analogy or if it's from, from the back of my brain or what, but it's, it's like a game of telephone. The, this glue code you're talking about, maybe Yurun's uh, moving his eyes in such a way that maybe he doesn't know what the game of telephone is, or maybe maybe you don't either, Mario. No, uh, I don't. I okay, don't good. Either. Then no, that gives fine. me the opportunity to, to explain the analogy. So it's <laughs> game of telephone. Maybe it's an American thing. Is something you know children play in school where you know you've got uh, people people lined up in a row, and you whisper something into the uh, person's ear. So the first person whispers something into their ear. It's a message. And then the next person whispers it into the next person's ear and so on. And the message continues around and comes all the way back to the original person who said the message. And inevitably, it gets lost in translation. Somewhere along the way, there's a loss of information. And it's like an emergent system. You get this like completely absurd, bizarre message. And that's what it feels like writing glue code sometimes. Is It's just, you know, as you said, like it's the the lowest common denominator you've got to you've got to communicate like the the semantics of a what represents a posix number is now an int and what represents um parse don't validate type that represents the validations and the guarantees of it and all of this is an object with strings and ints and no guarantees and you know you, there are some things like custom scalers and GraphQL that can help with that. But still, like, it's a contract. You need to ensure that both sides are honoring that contract. But what if you didn't? Because there weren't two sides. It was just one. It was just one monolith where you just use it and you're not um, going through those translation layers and you're not playing the game of telephone. So it's it's huge. It's the, the, the you know, benefits of that are, are huge. It's a fun on side note for, for listeners, uh, in UK and Australian English, this game is called Chinese Whispers. I just looked it up. All right. Yeah, yeah. It's, a wiki, so it's a wiki page. <laughs> so you're familiar with that game. You're like, this rings a bell? Yeah, yeah, I yeah, see. yeah absolutely. Uh, in, okay, French, it's, it's, uh, in French, it's uh, Arabic telephone. Arabic telephone. How um, interesting. And by, the, and by the way, it's a very fun game if you do it with mimes. That sounds extremely French. That's great. <laughs> Pulling a rope. Does everyone have to, to be get dressed, out of a box? Dressed as a mime in the black and white. Like. This sounds Amazing. incredible. I would love to watch a YouTube video of this. I know what I'm doing when we finish this recording. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, that that um, you you mentioned before the microservices thing, and I've, I I just find that really funny because the the I I feel like by accident I've been trying so many things working towards Lambera um, over the years over my career, but I think I've been I've been doing it without realizing where I was wanting to go, um, and yeah, like that each time it was like the new CMS and the new framework, I was like, oh, fine, like this is great, this is gonna be the one. Like it sounds good, and then like you get into the depths of it, and then you just you just I just end up being so disappointed. And yeah, the last big one was microservices, and I just remember being so excited. I was like, ah, oh, it makes sense now. You know, like when I heard about the concept, I understood it, and you know, I read all like Martin Fowler's stuff. Of it. I'm like, this makes sense. 
this is how we manage complexity. And at my 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 last job, yeah, we 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 started doing that. You know, we we started building a bunch of services, and we 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 went 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 running with it. And now, in hindsight, I find it hilarious. Like at the time, uh, so uh, I was working in Melbourne, Australia, back then, and um, REA Real Estate Australia was like. You know, our, our version of like a Spotify company, you know, like they were like doing really cool engineering. They were leading the field and lots of talented people were going there. And one of the, one of the talented engineers there, she, she'd made this, uh, this library called Pact, right? We were using it for Ruby. And basically it was like, yeah, you, you know, you build up all your microservices and then you use Pact to basically generate like a schema definition, right? Of what your service provides. And then you would use Pact on the client sides as well to generate schemas for what they consume and then you would put packed into your build pipelines and basically packed would like pull in your other repositories and basically type check right that the contract you have is the contract they expect so right when you change your apis and stuff in the future you could get like a build failure to be like no no you can't deprecate that because so-and-so team kind of uses it and now looking back i'm like my god all we did was break up our monolith into a distributed monolith and then try add all these like second class type checking things back. And I'm like, and I was just, I was so disappointed. I'm like, it doesn't help at all. Like, it's just not, it's, it's, we tried to remove complexity by adding a whole new level complexity. And like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how much you guys know about distributed systems, but pretty much everything I read is like, don't because they're hard. (laughs) Like they're really hard. And it's like, you got to learn about cap theorem now. I'm like, I know. I just, I wanted this service to scale. I didn't, I didn't want cap theorem. I just, what? And so, yeah, I, 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 I think that's, that's really kind of influenced where I've ended up with Lambda, where I'm kind of like, yes, yes. I'm not saying like throw those things away. I'm not saying Lambda is a silver bullet, but man, just like 95% of the stuff I've worked on did not need that stuff. We needed a better way to deal with complexity, not like a better way to scale those apps. You know, scale wasn't a problem. It wasn't the primary problem anyway. So yeah, Lambda is kind of like really honing in on that, trying to be like, okay, what would that, what would be a more delightful way? Is there a more delightful way to deal with that complexity to express your essential stuff? And then when you have scaling problems, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. you deal, you deal with that particular thing. Right. Yeah. I, I think that um, it's, it's easy to forget with these really sleek solutions that there are things that can go wrong with these layers. And, you know, like, like with, with Elm pages, at, at one point, people were asking, like, oh, is Elm Pages going to have, like, a GraphQL layer where you can, like, query for data that you've gathered, like Gatsby-esque? And, and I was like, that is absolutely not my goal because, like, <laughs> Elm has a type system, and I just want you to use that. When you're getting data, I just want you to get data in Elm. I don't want you to have to go through another hop and another translation layer and and lowest common denominator because people forget because GraphQL is such a, a lovely way of doing that, of solving that problem. If you're like, I need to use the GitHub API, it's like, wow, this is great. I can see the documentation there. I can see what data I can get. I can type check it. It makes sense. But if you don't need that, it's better to avoid it altogether. So, you know, just... Uh, Removing those translation layers is always a good thing. Even the most elegant translation layer and the one that enforces the contract and is well-typed and such, you're still, it's lossy. You're still losing type information and guarantees and, and creating new contracts in the process. And there's a lot of implicit stuff there as well, right? Like I think it, like we, we all know Elm quite well and have used it and really comfortable with it, right? So, so some of the 
stuff that like maybe newcomers or people entirely new, like they may hear a lot of the words that we use and be like, yeah, my language has that. I don't really understand. You know, like, like Haskell has that. What's the difference? I think the difference is like when you actually use it and you feel the ergonomics, like it's not just the fact that Elm has that type safety. It's just that it, it's instant, right? Like it's, it's fast. Like, I mean, I, one of the banes of having to <laughs> build a, a platform is you inevitably never get to use the platform, right? So I feel like 90% of my time yeah. is writing Haskell in the Elm compiler, right? Like that's, that's where most of Lambda's stuff is, right? It's Haskell. And it's just not nice. Like uh, I, I, mm-hmm. I love Haskell. It, it has so many cool things and it was my gateway drug into, into FB, but man, I like, you know, waiting, waiting 30, 40 seconds just to type check things like, mm. yeah, the, the, that, that's, it's, just, it's so understated how like Evan's focus on, on making that performance and that speed really fast. It just changes. It's just not, you know, fast type inference and slow type inference may as well to be two completely different things in my eyes, right? Like just, just that the way that you build things and the way that you approach stuff when you, when you have it be that quick is completely different. And I found, yeah, the way that I approach building full stack apps with Lambda as a result is just completely different, right? Like the, the confidence that you have to charge into making wide sweeping changes and stuff like that. It's just, yeah. A lot of the same stuff that people rave about for Realm, right? And that's that's uh, that's the part that I really enjoy when I when I get the chance to do it. <laughs> <laughs> you have to live vicariously through Martin Stewart or uh, <laughs> yeah. people with the first I'm name so, Martin. Yeah, I'm so <laughs> jealous. So jealous of the Martins. They build such cool stuff, and I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> I'm just I'm just an ice cream vendor. I have to watch you eat it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So so let's um so many so many great things to, to talk about here, but I want to make sure that we paint a concrete picture a little bit with like, what are, what are the actual, um, you know, tools at your disposal writing Lambda, like, for example, send to backend and types.elm and, you know, the, the init um, and, and update and subscriptions and update from, from front end in, in the backend.elm module. So like, let's, let's dig into that a little bit. Like, you know, let's say, I mean, for example, let's just say we're building um, a chat, real-time chat application. And we haven't really mentioned yet, but it's, it's real-time. So if like uh, building like a chat application is almost like a hello world in Lambda, right? It, because it's, it, it's so trivial to do real-time data. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's literally the hello world. It's, right. it's, it's one of the canonical examples on the uh, very simplified chat without much concern for things like reconnecting or, or messages dropping, stuff like that. But but still, yes, it's, it's like, I think it's like 200 lines of code uh, where 120 lines is is the UI. And and yeah, it's the, the, the reason it's so simple is because if we, like, so I'll, I'll at the risk of laboring the point, bring it back to like those core principles. So if we just forget Lambda for a second, say, all right, let's design a system talking about the the six core principles we had before, right? There's what the back end knows, there's what the front end knows, there's messages that happen on the front end, there's messages that happen on the back end, there's data going to the back end and coming from the back end, right? So let's design a chat app just talking about these principles. And if we do that, it'll take a couple of minutes and we've basically designed the code that's there. So how do we design it? Let's start with the front end, right? I would say, okay, we build a UI, we build a box, we build a text input. Let's say we we're going to get slightly fancy, right? Slightly fancy. So every time I type in my message and I hit submit, like that's a front end message in Elm, right? Hitting, you know, the chat text submitted, right? And so my update function, I'm handling that. And let's say optimistically, I just add it straight into my model, right? So I'm going to say, like, I'm just going to assume that this message is going to be in the chat. 
in my model, I have, let's say, let's just be really basic. Say I have a list of string, right? A list of messages. Let's forget authors and stuff. We can, we can expand it. I hypothetically say we have a list of string. So I add it to my list of string. Um, so that's how I change my model. And then I have in my command, uh, a send to backend, you know, a new message. And then let's say, let's go record, right? I'm going to have a record or I'm going to say username, string, uh, text, string, right? Right. So I hit save on this. And then immediately I get a compiler error, right? Which says, well, what this, this value that you're trying to send to the back and this doesn't exist. Fine. So I go into my types.elm where all of the core types live. And then in my two backend custom type, I put a, you know, message, you know, chat, uh, I don't know what we're going to say, chat message submitted. So now I hit save and now immediately I get another compiler error, right? The compiler is being like, cool, you've said that, you know, you expect this message, but the, 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 the update from front-end handler in your back-end doesn't have this in the case statement. Okay, so I go there and I add the case statement. So this message has come in. Um, it's a record with the name of the user and the text. What do I do with it? Well, let's say, again, naively in the back-end, let's say I just have a list of string. So I just append it to the string. And then for good measure, let's say that just really naively, I'll send the entire message history to the front-end, right? That's kind of dumb. It's not optimal. Let's just assume. And better yet, let's just um, let's just use the the other primitive. So instead of um, send to front end, which requires a client ID, let's do lambda.broadcast, which sends to everybody. So I do lambda.broadcast, and then the the call the constructor um, of that custom type all messages, and I give it the list of all messages. All right now I get a new uh, error that says okay, well this doesn't exist in your types. I go back into types. There's a two front end type, so I go okay, fine. I need the you know all messages to front-end message, save that. New compiler error, your update from back-end in the front-end is saying, you don't cover this message. Fine, go there, implement it, and what do we do? Let's just say naively, every time we get a full list of messages from the back-end, let's just replace our model wholesale, right? Let's just completely replace the list of messages. We hit save, that compiles, and we're done. If we deployed this right now as it is, and multiple multiple clients open, open that messages stream, if one types something, that's gonna get sent to the back-end, Back and saves it, sends the whole model to everybody. Bam, that message is available for everybody. The other person said something, the same thing's going to happen. Yes, potentially we we have a slight race condition where if two of them type the message at the exact same time, that might very, very slightly show in different orders on their front end. But a second later, the back end is going to send all of the messages, so all of the ordering, and it's just going to get fixed, right? So really, really naively, really, really naively, the only code we've written was the code that had to do with the business logic of what we this this you know stupid simple chat um, that we wanted to implement, and yeah, just by by virtue of how those kind of six principles break down, right? Like the four message types and the two two model types, chat fits really nicely to that by accident, right? So yeah, that's the that's the design it yourself without code Lambda version one example. Yeah. Uh, so so now the the cool thing is you've you've built this um, naive chat app that doesn't have users or any of those basics just to get something up but but now it's a it's a type safe elm application you've got your your frontend.elm your backend.elm your types.elm which has the the two backend two frontend messages um, which are just message types like we're used to in a vanilla elm app except they're the the messages like you described in those those six different areas. Uh, so now if we say, I don't want this to be a list of string anymore, I want to have the user IDs associated with them. And so now you say this, this um, send to backend message that you had that was sending um, a string for the new message in the chat, 
um, it's now a record and it has the user ID and the um, and the message. Although I guess um, you already have the session ID that you're receiving from that user, so you don't even necessarily need to change that. But let's let's say you're adding some some bit of metadata to to the chat somehow. You're uh, or or you're creating a new a new message like a you know if the um, if they change their status or something like that. But but it's an Elm application, which means um, when you change things, the Elm compiler is going to walk you through how you need to change things. So let's talk about that process a little, because there are some ways that that's going to be a familiar experience, and then some ways that that Lambda introduces some some new concepts that are like really powerful features that are going to feel like a familiar experience, but like the 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 migrations, migrating these these messages. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you've touched on two things there. So the, the first part of it is like changing that code. And my goal is to make that as as close to or basically identical to the Elm refactoring experience as possible. Like that's that's what it, I, I just love that experience. I, I think it's the nicest refactoring experience I've ever seen in my career. And so my goal with Lambda is to be like that, like that. There's no reason to not preserve that. And that kind of extends to, so I, on um, two versions ago, I did a lot of work trying to kind of distill the, basically like I, I started initially with an assumption that um, Lambda wouldn't be backwards compatible with Elm. So some choices were made and I had separate caches and stuff and it, and it turned out to cause issues with ID and tooling. So a couple of versions ago, I spent a lot of time trying to actually reconcile that back. So Lambda is not, it's not forwards compatible with Elm right now, but it's backwards compatible. What that means is like if you've had an Elm project already and you've been working on it and you install Lambda, you have to run a Lambda reset command initially just to bust out the caches and let Lambda, like the Lambda Elm compiler, build all your caches for you because of some of the stuff that we do under the hood. Um, but once that's done, it's backwards compatible. So you can go back to all of your Elm projects and they'll all work fine. Um, like they'll work fine with the Lambda caches, just Lambda won't work with the vanilla Elm caches. Um, so the idea there was like, yeah, now, as far as I'm aware, all of the Elm tooling, like, so the IDE tooling with, if you want to use language server or whatever it is, like once Lambda has compiled stuff and the caches are there, that IDE experience should be the same. So like everything that used to with Elm, or if you really like using IDE stuff, like, you know, rename all symbols or, you know, extract, extract, let, let closures to, to functions or whatever you're doing, like renaming types, that should be as normal, right? And then there should be nothing new there. So then the question we get is like, okay, say, say, you know, we got really excited. Um, we deployed our naive app. Um, you know, a whole bunch of people have been chatting in it and it's really successful. And we're like, oh man, like now we want to add all these new features, right? The types have changed concretely. And, and what do we, what do we do with this production data? Right? Like it's, it's in the wrong shape, right? Our, Throw it our away. Has changed. Throw it away. <laughs> yeah. Sort in database and. Lambda's yeah. philosophy is all data is transient. Just throw it away. <laughs> um, no, no, not at all. So this is probably the most um, this is probably the most kind of complex part of Lambda at the moment, and the stuff that's maybe the least intuitive. I feel like once you get the core premise, it's pretty intuitive, but like the implementation is still pretty pretty tricky. Um, but basically, the core idea is, I mean, it's pretty boring. It's like how do we we have something in shape A and we have something in shape B. Like, how do we get from A to B? 
functions. Like, you know, it's just the, the kind of like stock standard Elm answer. How do you do this? Functions. What about this? Function. Right. So yeah, I, essentially all that evergreen, the evergreen, the migration system of Lambda is, uh, I was like, oh, I, I want to change from that shape that is in production to the shape that I have now, like the new shape of types that I've changed. You know, now I've got usernames and we've got timestamps and we've got, you know, message colors and what, like whatever we want to have, right? I'm like, how, how do I, how do I deploy this new version and have all that sorted? And yeah, the answer is you write a function. Lambda kind of auto generates some placeholders for you and goes, look, you've, I've got this old type, you know, it's this shape. And then you've got this new type. It's this shape. I need a function from that type. So that is old value. Like do, do what you want. Just like, you just, just write, write a conversion. And if you can write a conversion and it type checks, then I'm like, okay, cool. Like Lambda is going to say, well, I will now guarantee to you that if you know this thing that you're that you're um, saying you're going to deploy that's going to deploy right like i've type checked it against production you told me how to move all those values between one to the other and you know i i've checked in production that those types are still the types that you're saying so as at this point if you hit deploy right now i'm going to guarantee that all of that makes sense so the kind of the insight there that i realized eventually was like that's what i was missing on all the projects that i've worked on before it's like no matter what kind of guarantees you have your app what we're missing is guarantees between apps and like i think the closest i got the closest i've seen to that or the the, the language that i seen to it the nicest probably is rails you know like they've got active record migrations and there's this notion of being able to roll forward and roll backwards like a lot of the default types you know if you say you know rename this table in the background rails is like figuring out that you know renaming it forward would mean renaming it backwards if you rolled it back and and you know you could you you could test that locally and write tests for it but even still like it's not it's not type safe right like uh, we've definitely had experiences in the past where you have a bad migration in production and you you know it forgot that you know some column could actually be null or whatever and then you know just the whole thing blows up and so my my goal with the evergreen migrations in Lambda was to not have that happen and there's a there's an important feature that that Lambda has that like that with rails you wouldn't get which is like rails gives you the ability to like do database migrations but but if you're rolling out a new version where um the api is not compatible there's no notion of of that you're on your own you 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 have to build your own conventions and contracts for for that which you know there are ways to do that but you're you're on your own doing that and there's nothing to protect you from from doing something incorrectly there but with lambda there's the the contract is not like a rest api like in rails and then if you change the contract in the api you have to whatever do api versioning create new apis and still ha- be backwards compatible if you want to be or whatever in lambda um but you you could you could be in transit receiving a message from an old version and then the messages you expect change and for for that you've got a, a way a way to migrate these old incoming messages so you can like while it, i think you call it like hot hot reloading the the back end right yeah so it, it kind of just shakes out of the same design it's nothing mm-hmm. nothing really special or different so yeah the 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 edge case like that you're mentioning there with like a lot of classical apps is like and when i say classical i mean like the the current kind of full stack thing that you would expect you know there's a there's a there's a server in some language a front end in some language you got some some uh, some sort of protocol in between and yeah yeah you i i spoke about this at 
as kind of one of the opening motivators for my evergreen talk, which is like, you know, you deploy a version two of your backend. And then for some reason, the version two of the front end is maybe slightly off or there's a lot of traffic and there's a lot of traffic in flight. And, um, and I think our normal answer in, 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 this is why I feel like the, the concept of the semantic boundary stuff is, is so nice because now we can say like what we normally do is we go, you know what, let's completely avoid the fact that there's semantic boundaries here. Like, let's not talk about that complexity at all. Instead, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater and be like, you know what, uh, industry best practice is that everything's always backwards compatible. And I'm like, that's like that. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a solution. But it's it's pretty intense, right? Like that really limits now, like how you're going to approach the, your thinking and your nervousness and your caution about making like really wide sweeping changes. And I, I don't get me wrong. Like if you're Google, like, yeah, like the, <laughs> this message is not for you, right? Like, I don't, I don't know what you guys are dealing with. You're dealing with some crazy stuff and, and that's fine, but it's specialist, right? Like if I'm dealing on a website with like a thousand, 10,000 users, even like it doesn't have to be like that. There are some other trade-offs. So yeah, to answer your question, how do we do this live reload? Well, you know, to, to to change your backend model types, we had type A, we had type B, and wanted to move between the two. Messages are the same, right? You had your old in-flight message type, and you got your new in-flight message type. Um, if your backend is just upgraded to version two, and it receives a version one message type, what do we do with it? Exactly the same thing. You write a function from A to B, only if it's changed, right? Lambda like only forces you to write migrations for the types that have changed, right? So, so most of the time, you don't have to write any changes for your core types. But yeah, let's say your backend uh, uh, message has changed. And usually messages are a lot easier to migrate because usually it's it's really something like inane. Like for example, you've removed a message, right? You, like you remove you've removed a message variant from your old message. So if it comes into your new backend, well, what does it mean? Let's say let's say we've removed the feature to alert of chat room joins, right? Like so that so before every time someone joined the backend, we get a message of joined you know user or whatever and let's say we've removed that right and so we deploy and as we deploy let's say like hundreds of users were joining right so the backend upgrades to version two and suddenly gets hit with like a hundred of these like version one uh, user join messages well you write a migration function and in the migration function you decide how to handle it right and so one way to handle it is to be like we'll just drop it on the floor we'll do nothing right we don't have this feature anymore you know map map this migration to the value ignore right like, uh, and then Lambda will be like, cool, okay, I'm not going to do anything with the message. I'm going to drop it on the floor. Or you can say, well, actually, you know, we don't have user joined indicators, um, but, you know, maybe for analytics, like we still do something in the back end. I don't know, right? Like maybe, maybe we have some different feature where actually the user now subscribes to join notifications, right? So in then uh, in your migration, you'd say, okay, well, whenever I get this old message value, I'm actually going to fire this new message value which is like you know process for user channel join subscriptions or whatever right and then that will get once that migration is done lambda will be like cool i'm going to give this now to your backend update function and let it handle like you know the, the result of the migration of this message and again the, the really root goal here is just that like when you write this stuff and it compiles like it works like it's guaranteed like that's that's the that's the contract with the compiler that it'll guide you along and 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 hold your hand for like all these kind of things. And then once you're done, it's like cool because you've been you know because you followed that API and you've been nice and constrained. Now I know that I can go and do all this stuff for you because it's you know it's very very clear. There's no side effects in there. I know you're not calling JavaScript. I know there's no like weird state to handle otherwise. Like the design of Elm allows for us to try this kind of 
rather different approach to, to doing holistic type safe migrations between systems. Right. So Lambda is also handling the hosting of the application, right? Is mm -hmm. you could have done Lambda not handle that part. Was uh, Evergreen just like the, do you need to do hosting for Evergreen to work? Is, is that the primary factor, motivation? Yeah, so I think, so if we were to talk about like kind of what, what feature led to Lambda becoming like a full platform, like more of a SaaS thing, yes, that's it. So the the features, yeah, the features that kind of force that is is when you say, um, like when you say, hey, Lambda, deploy this new version, right? Like Lambda needs to be like, okay, when I deploy versions, you know, I do a check for you to make sure that that like everything that you're about to deploy, deploy makes sense of the types that are already deployed in production. And so we go, okay, fine. How do we get the types that are deployed in production? It's like, well, we need probably, you know, some API there and that has rich information in it. And then it's like, well, like that then leads to being like, okay, well, there's the concept of apps, right? And apps have name, like which app are you talking about right now? Now suddenly we have app naming, right? And so you don't want to have collision with app naming. So you need a system that's tracking up. And then, We haven't talked about it yet, but you know, like the compiler now also does the, 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 we have the secret config or the, just the config, environmental config, right? Type safe environmental config. And part of that is secrets, right? Which are like, which are things that you don't want to ship into your front end, right? So the compiler can additionally needs to be like, okay, I'm going to check all the secrets you use in your code. But obviously when we deploy, we need to inject those values, right? So I also need an API to talk to that contains all those values. And, you know, your secret key probably shouldn't be accessible to everybody. So now we have the concept of accounts, right? I need to know, well, which which apps that I'm keeping track of belong to which account? Do you have authentication for that? So now we've got the Lambda login functionality where the CLI authenticates. You know, so like slowly, little by little, it just became clear that like there wasn't, there's no, there's no nice non-service way to do this stuff, right? Like in order to know these things, there's a bit of a, um, there's like a coupling between like the code and the process that you do locally and your live production system, like the config it has, what kind of state it's in, where the past deploys have failed, you know, th th those two kind of together necessitated moving that direction. And so as I moved in that direction, it just became clear, like, well, actually, if we do, let's say we do bring hosting and, and deployment into the picture, some things actually get much nicer and easier, right? Rather than being like, oh, You know, does Lambda do Docker or I don't know, like what's popular? Kubernetes, I guess that's cool these days. But no, there's that blog post that says that it isn't cool and you should. And it's, I just kind of, I was like, ah, you know, it like what going back to the like root thing, like what what cuts out the non-essential complexity? What makes all of that nice? And it kind of naturally led me to uh, kind of Lambda being a service. Does that mean it can't be like a self-install thing in the future? No, I don't think so. Um, it probably just means packaging up like all that service infrastructure and, and having it available in some way. But like right now, that's not where the value lies, right? Right now, yeah. the value lies in, in kind of nailing those um, complexity things. So kind of that's what I'm pursuing. And that's, yeah, I guess that's why things are the way they are. So I think most of our listeners are going to be on board with <clears throat> the, uh, value proposition of like, you know, type safety. And like, what if you took that type safety to its logical conclusion? And, you know, I mean, that's sort of, I mean, if you're not, then I'm impressed that you've gotten this far listening <laughs> to, to me and here and nerd out about type safety and contracts and all this stuff. 
probably people that Mario forced <laughs> to listen to the podcast. Maybe, um, maybe I'm sorry. So. <laughs> you know, so we we all we all see this is this is an incredible concept and Elm is like just the perfect tool for this and uh Lambdera has like I I think really nailed like the details in terms of the evergreen migrations and the send to backend messages and all this stuff. I think the the big question for a lot of people is going to be should I use this in my company, right? And like is it is it ready? What's it what's it ready for? Um so let's talk about that a little bit like and I I know you you've got you've got some some good notes on that at the Lamjar website. But let's dig into that a little bit. Like what should how should someone evaluate that decision of like I'm I'm starting a new project. Should I consider Lambda? Is it a viable option for for my use case or not? What are the considerations there? Yeah. So the first consideration is um, I so I I really admire um, I really admire that the way that Evan thinks really deeply about experience. And so one of the things that I thought about for a while and got feedback from a bunch of people was like, what is the experience of evaluating new tech? And it seems to be that the consensus is that like you know. Every project is going to be like, and if you take a look, like go look at like, you know, Nux.js and Next.js and, and a lot of the popular frameworks these days, like every single one is the same. It's like, get started in two minutes. And it's like, there's like, what, what am I getting started? What am I getting in for? And they use a lot of like, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit shady. Maybe it's not. Maybe I, I doubt people are trying to be malicious on purpose. I mean, it's just the way our industry has evolved. But there's always like, you know, 20,000 stars on GitHub and everyone's using this. And like, I mean, I, I do the same, right? You go to lambdera.com and the very first thing I put is user testimonials. But where you should start is go to lambdera.com slash shouldn't dash use. Um, and I've just like, I've done an anti-marketing page to kind of just be like, here's all the pitfalls, right? Like, there's all the ones that I'm aware of. If you know of any others I'm not aware of, like, let me know. It's a weird balance, right? Like, cause I want to promote Lambda, but I don't want to waste your time. Like, I, I definitely don't want anybody. I don't want to have, I don't, I can't imagine um, anyone having the experience that I used to have where you spend like, you know, three weeks diving into, I don't know. I, the, the only one springs mm-hmm. to, Docker, mm-hmm. to mind for me is Docker. I got into Docker way too early and it had mm. so many problems and, 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 and like, you know, not like I just, I, there was no good information about any of it. You just had to burn time. And I'd like, that's not what I want, right? The whole point of Lambda was to save you tons of time. So, um, start with shouldn't use. If any of the stuff makes you nervous, jump on the, the, the discord that we have, ask about it, um, talk about it. Um, yeah, I I I, I kind of want to start from that point to be like, that, here are the edges, right? Like, the, this don't use it. But on the flip side, like, why you, you should use Lambda? Um, I think the sweet spot right now is if you're a company that uses Elm or you're somebody that uses Elm, and especially if you've had this feeling of like, you know, you start on a project and you're excited for the project, and then like three months later you're debugging like HTTP decoders and and dealing with migration issues and, and whatever. And like you have that experience of like getting bogged down and like the project gets less and less fun to work on. That I think like if you if you give Lambda a go for that instead, I think you'll find what I found and what other people seem to be saying is like that feeling isn't there. Right. Like that weird slow down, the bogging down, the complexity kind of kind of blowing out. Like it just doesn't it doesn't seem to manifest in the same way. Right. And that like that ends up 
resulting in like a really delightful feeling, right? And from a like from a really pragmatic point of view, I'd say like if you value your time, then it's much clearer once you've experienced that to be like, holy crap, like there's just so much time I didn't have to spend on stuff that didn't help me with my core goal. And yeah, like the, all the all the the I mean, it's probably probably too long to go into all the reasons you shouldn't use Lambda error, but like I, I tried to lay them out clearly there to give you yeah. an idea of like even you know even though it may it's really easy for me to be like oh it'll save you a ton of time if there's like a roadblock you're gonna run into later like it, it's kind of pointless right but the one that the one I think that people the one I will point out that I think that people bring up a lot as a as a potentially big issue that I don't really think is as big an issue as we've conditioned ourselves to think it is is this one of scale right like people always mm. go like oh how's Lambda going to scale yeah, I'm like cool. Like, what do you what do you mean by scale, right? Like, the probably one of the largest sites I ever worked on had peak traffic of like a thousand requests a second. That mm-hmm. was with like fifty fifty thousand shoppers on the site at once. Yeah, right. If you're talking about that kind of scale, I think Lambda can handle that scale fine, right? Like, yeah. I haven't post public benchmarks yet. It's something I need to work on, but like locally, I can run at about three thousand requests a second, right? So it's like it's basically. I mean, it's nothing special. It's basically in kind of Ruby, JavaScript, just kind of standard, unoptimized kind of territory. Like the, the real like the real bigger question is going to be like, well, when you're talking about the kind of complexity that you deal with, like the, the scale, I think, I think in terms of impact to somebody's business or impact to somebody's time, the amount of time and scaling issues you'll spend on all of that non-essential complexity, I think will be more than offset by the time that you'll save in Lambda about not having to worry about those things up front. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So don't see a Christian. That's definitely one of the the key points that I think people will wonder about. Like, you know, it's it's challenging as a as a business or you know employee at a company to like make these calls. And you know, there's I mean, we all we all relate to this in the Elm ecosystem of like, wait a minute, but like React has a bajillion packages, and and React has a bajillion users, and Elm doesn't have a bajillion users. Is that okay? Is Elm dead because it <laughs> didn't have a release this year? And you know, I won't rehash that. But yes, the 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 benefits are very clear. Um, I really like what you're saying about scale. I think that you know the the worry is it, it's such a, a burden of proof as a as a, an employee choose you know championing a tool to say I'm confident that we're not going to get stuck in a dead end here. And uh, so I, I really like that you've got this like shouldn't use reasons you shouldn't use Lambda anti marketing yeah. page. I think that's really cool. Another one you've got mm-hmm. here is like restricted JavaScript, which goes into you know the guarantees that Lambda gives you. Let uh, let's like dive into that one a little bit. Yeah, sure. So the originally, so I, also on the shouldn't use page, I I also note that things change over time, right? So I've been kind of leaving little breadcrumbs of like restrictions that used to be there, and then I'm crossing out when they change. So so to your point about like businesses and confidence, that we haven't talked about it yet, but you know, I just did the Lambda version 1.0.0 release, um, and the whole the whole goal of that and the feature sets that I was working on to release that was basically to increase the kind of productionization of Lambda and the confidence that businesses could have in using it. You know, before we were in alpha and I had kind of like, 
even though it really wasn't that dire, I just kind of felt like I, I just really don't want to waste people's time. You know, if people want to ignore the warnings and come in for the bleeding edge, perfect. But, you know, I kind of peppered all over everything. I'm like, this is alpha. Don't use it. It's really bad. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is funny because then some people come back afterwards and be like, is it still really bad? And like, oh, <laughs> uh, it was never really bad. I was just saying that. <laughs> your your anti-marketing um, campaign was too effective. Yeah, backfire. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely people that have a perception like, oh, it's fully experimental. You shouldn't shouldn't touch it yet. And so the version one release was supposed to signal like that's now you know my my rapid experimentation with with the stuff in the core has kind of settled. Like there hasn't been massive. I, I I'm I'm confident now that those six core types and that premise is solid. Like that part's not changing, right? And so. Yeah, like the, the, the point of, of, of doing um, the version one release was to be like, cool, like I'm signaling that I'm now focusing on the production stuff, right? I'm now, you're not going to just arbitrarily use your data. I wasn't willing to give that guarantee before, even though I tried to maintain it, right? I didn't want people to lose data arbitrarily, but, you know, we had to have like, there was a, I found it. A user found a bug in a, in, a, in the wire protocol and we had to make a major change and it was just easier to wipe data than to carry it forward. And so, yeah, that now leads into to the, to the JavaScript stuff. So originally that page said no JavaScript, none whatsoever, anywhere. And that, that is still true for the backend and exactly for the reasons that you said, right? Not having that there means that like it, it's purely again like uh, yeah I like it's well behaved you, uh, yeah <laughs> yeah if you understand the if you understand the core premise of lambda about removing the the complexity of the semantic boundaries then it makes sense why that feature is there right you work your way backwards to go okay i've got data in production and i need to migrate it um you know how do i write this migration function javascript you can't it's like okay how do i guarantee there's no side effects javascript you can't uh, it's just like you know every every answer it kind of falls on so it's like what's the answer well we don't have it there until until we can figure out a way However, something that started to come up a lot, um, and you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Martin. Uh, so Martin's done, uh, been an avid, an avid user, an avid yeah. supporter, and has written a ton of really, really cool apps, which I kind of showcase mm-hmm. every time I release anything. Um, and yeah, he, he's got his Elm audio package, you know, so he approached me once and was like, well, how can I, how could we do Elm audio? And th- like working through that and thinking about it more, what we realized was, well, actually, it, it does, it actually can make sense to have some JavaScript on the front end um, in a constrained way, where when we think about what a migration looks like, you, it, you, you can actually make sense of it, right? Either it doesn't hold any state of its own, um, or if it does hold something like, say, you know, like the audio context has been initialized, you could conceive of preserving that through an upgrade function, right? So there could be a JavaScript upgrade function where doesn't really update any data, but it might just be like, oh, you know, you need a new audio handler. I'm just going to use the previous reference because the page is already initialized or whatever it might be. Right. So we, we started exploring this. And as I started thinking about it more, it birthed uh, something that I've not promoted in the community yet, um, uh, but it's something called Elm Package JS. So it was the, uh, this idea of like, what would it like, what would it look like if we had some sort of standard or some sort of tooling so that certain Elm packages could say, hey, like, to use this, like what we do today is, is, you know, every author in their own different style will be like, hey, install this package, but need some JavaScript. So copy this code for the JavaScript and copy this code for the ports and then copy this into your subscriptions and then remember to send this command, you know, and then we've got like this whole set of steps and every project basically does the same thing. And then there's a bunch of people that have tried to fix that with kind of Elm package standards, but they've all like, you know, they, they all kind of go in different, different, slightly different ways. So I kind of did, I did like a, 
uh, literature review, review, if you can call it literature, mm-hmm. docs review mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. of all the packages that were out there and kind of thought about this. And yeah, uh, on my GitHub repo, um, elm-packet, elm-pkg-js is kind of the start of a draft where I've been thinking about this. And so there's a draft implementation of this in Lambda with very, very specific things. We have constrained um, JavaScript that can be added in and all the ports wiring and stuff gets auto-generated for you. So uh, uh, another simple example is copy to clipboard, right? It's not, it doesn't really have state. It's just an API that needs to be available. A migration, it doesn't conflict with the concept of evergreen migrations. Like there's unlikely to be a in-flight copy-paste, you know, that you need to upgrade. That concept doesn't, doesn't really, doesn't really conflict. And so, yeah, so that's kind of softened. So, so, um, yeah, in the context of that shouldn't use page and the version one release, I guess what I'm, what I'm inviting people to understand about Lambda now slightly differently is to be like, it's not experimental anymore. Um, yes, there are sharp edges, but like we should chat about them because things can change, right? And so some of those constraints that are there, not all of them are permanent, um, and they can be discussed. And so, yeah, I think it's cool, cool things come out of it. And I hope that to push the, the Elm package JS kind of spec forward, I, I think it would be really cool for it just to be a community thing. Cause then we could have an alternative where it's, it's not about NPM, right? This is, it's not about being like, Oh, I want to use D3.js. How do I bundle it quickly? It's more to be like, you know, there's some, there's some things that Elm core doesn't cover in kernel yet, right? This is not about doing kernel. This is about making the ports ergonomics a little nicer and easier to use in the meantime. And then also, you right, know, it just it, right. pro- it provides really nice case in point examples to the core team. We say, look, here are the here are the ten JavaScript usages that just keep coming up over and over and over. Here's how they're implemented. People are happy with this. I think that serves as really awesome research for someone to then consider. Okay, well, what would be the maintenance burden or the cost of actually um, sucking this into core and offering it natively? I, I think it's just a really nice way to showcase an experiment in a standardized way, rather than being like, oh, hey, Evan, here's seven packages that have 10 different, you know, ways to integrate the JS. Like you have to analyze the pros and cons like manually. Um, so yeah, there's a secondary effect of, of that exercise. And and then it's, it's still not FFI. So mm-hmm. you preserve the, the guarantees within the Elm sandbox. Cause that's the, that's the huge thing. I mean, the, the port design in Elm versus other, you know, languages that, you know, like, like Rescript, ReasonML, formerly that um that have this ffi concept these you know binding directly you have these um guarantees that get watered down whereas you know with elm that's the whole point you're not you can't water down the guarantees you can't trick the compiler you can't sneak in side effects and and lambda also relies on and is built on those guarantees so so like um so so you can't have like back end calls to JS in Lambda for to preserve those guarantees. But you so um I believe um in in Martin Stewart's Meetdown, uh which which is super cool a super cool Lambda app that that now is hosting the Elm online meetups or meetdowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get these uh you know it, it can send email, which is mm-hmm. like uh and and now I believe it's doing that through calling an email service through HTTP. Is that correct? Yeah. So one thing that I, I haven't noticed until recently, but a lot of confusions come up recently uh, with the V1 releases, people go, oh, well, how does, how does Lambda communicate? You know, if you've got this, all this type safe stuff between the front end and back end, how do you communicate with the, the outside world? 
And, and the answer is the same way that a browser communicates with the outside world, right? Like on, on, on the front end, when you want to do HTTP stuff, you do a request, right? So it's like there's a difference between, so while the front end back end comms in Lambda is type safe and strict, that's not to say that all comms are type safe and strict, right? If you want to make a HTTP request to a third party service, you can still do that from the back end. And in fact, that's exactly what you have to do for something like email, because usually these email services will have a secret token and one, you can't call it from the front end because of cause protections. And two, mm. you can't call it from the front end because you don't want to expose your token, right? Someone can steal your token and send it everywhere. Um, so one, that's why the secret config um, feature exists. Um, but two, that's how, if you're going to say how to Lambda app scale, like that would be one way mm. to say it right now. Yeah. You know, say say you, you had like a data set that got too big for your backend, you could incrementally or in one hit post that out to some other service and right. then use HTTP to query that service as part of kind of the, the normal backend set of functionality. So in a way, that's like an escape hatch. Like, yeah. And it preserves those guarantees because it's like, yes, we're performing an HTTP request, but it doesn't pollute the purity and side effect free quality within the Lambda backend, right? Yeah, which then also means it ties into the evergreen, evergreen guarantee. So say... Say you're making a HTTP request in the backend and it's a long running request. And so, I mean, consider doing this on whatever tech stack you use today, right? HTTP request is in flight and then uh, you do a new deployment. Like what happens in your tech stack today? I, I would hazard a guess. I mean, maybe, maybe it's just me running <laughs> really unprofessional setups or something, but I would hazard a guess that most people would slightly panic. Uh-huh. Right? I'd be like, I I don't either I don't know or I'm not sure. If you're lucky, maybe you've got like a really nice deployment system that does rolling upgrades where you know you signal all of your servers that should be stopping and then they wait until mm-hmm. the HTTP request is done and then they, they process it and new servers come up at the same maybe you've got something magic that deals with that. But I reckon most people don't, right? right. I reckon most people they're right. like, um, don't know, maybe I drop it on the floor, maybe it times out. I, I don't yeah, know you build some complex system that drains a queue and yeah, keeps it yeah, idle yeah. for a while and then monitor Obviously. it and then you migrate over. And Kubernetes is yeah. involved, of course. Yeah, you go, Mario, Mario, you irresponsible <laughs> developer. What are you doing having inline HTTP? It's absurd. Clearly, you needed like Kafka and a queuing system with retries and all these and that, like, you know, and you've, you've like, you've completely failed uh, to scale um, and correctly build, uh, you know, your personal blog because you're, you're silly. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you're right. I should have put a Kafka queue in my blog. That's what I was missing. <laughs> No, so, so the, the, yeah, <laughs> at the risk of um, of sounding condescending. <laughs> no, so yeah, with Lambda, the the nice thing is, it's like you stick with those primitives, and they all kind of boil back. So you realize, yeah. well, you know, you deploy a new version, that new version takes over. This long running in flight request lands backwards. Uh, uh, sorry, lands afterwards. Afterwards, you know, so it was a request you sent in version one. You upgrade in the meantime. The request from version one comes back to find that it's a brand new app. Oh, that's okay. No cause for panic. Lambda told you before you deploy that you'd change something to do with this handling, and you would need a migration there. So when that message comes back, it's probably a backend message. You've got a handler for it, and you're like, well, okay, this is what I do with this request. It's come back as a version one type. You know, what did I want to do to transform it? If you're lucky, nothing changed. You don't have to do anything. It just gets handled. Um, but if something did change, you change that feature, or you change the types, or you change what you expected back. You know, you, you can very clearly and explicitly say in code, 
this is exactly what will happen when I get this type back. And I, I, you know, that's nothing new. That is literally the experience with Elm. It's just Lambda. Yeah. So for me, if I'm um, running a business and trying to make a business decision and evaluating Lambda, that gives that HTTP functionality gives me a lot of peace of mind. We should mention that this is like, this is pro functionality, right? No, 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 no. Oh, the HTTP requests? Everything, everything is baseline. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think there's nothing, there's nothing in the paid plans that have been released that I think restricts your usage of the core features in the language. So there's, so that I, I, yeah, I, I really get upset when I get some kind of freemium tooling where the development experience locally then gets kind of gated by something, you know, like the worst, yeah. I mean, I can't think of anything top of my head, but the worst thing would be like, say, you know, you download some premium IDE package and then you go rename all symbols and it's like, sorry, um, you have a hundred symbols, but until you upgrade, I can only rename seven of them. Mm. And you're like, why, <laughs> why? It's not like, that's not an up, that's not an upsell model. That's just like a make me angry model, yeah. right? Like an- anger fueled upgrades. Mm-hmm. Rage upgrades. Yeah, and you, will, and you will buy the license because of angriness. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's exactly. Model. And what, like, when I, when I, like, you know, when I was young and early starting my career, like that wasn't an option. So then you're like, oh, I guess I'll you know, go pirate it, maybe. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, now, now, like, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, privileged enough to just be able to pave to make that anger go away. But it's not. <laughs> I, mean, I don't. I don't. You know, I don't like yeah. that brand anymore. Afterwards, like, right? Yeah, right. And so, like, the goal with Lambda is like. I would like for people to have like a really, really nice experience and then to be like, oh man, like I love this. I really want to upgrade, right? Like, and then it's, it's like a, what you're upgrading for is like, I'm, I'm trying to structure it such that there are things that is a joy to upgrade for. So, you know, the only restrictions at the moment, um, so the hobby app now has, has, uh, uh, like an eight hours of sleep. So the idea is like, well, you know, probably if you're just kind of starting off with a free app and you're trying it out, it doesn't need to be running while you're sleeping. You can configure what time zone that is, but it doesn't run. And then the kind of push up to hobby is to be like, well, look, I'd, I'd like this to run 24-7. So then that that kind of unlocks that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the, the, the pro uh, plan is more structured at kind of, yeah, you know, a professional context. So if you're putting a custom domain name on your app, you're probably using it in in yeah, probably using it in more than a hobby context. Not always. Yeah, and if that upsets you, feel free to contact me. Um, but uh, yeah, the idea was is is to structure it. Cool. Actually, uh, I, I have to full disclosure. Very much influenced by by Dylan's thinking on, on on how to how to structure product stuff. Dylan gave me a lot of advice about that. So um, yeah, the idea is just to make that a pleasant up, and that it's very clear for you that you know like you're upgrading because of these benefits that'll make it delightful, not because of like artificial pain that Lambda has imposed on you to force you to feel bad about. Right. You're, yeah, no, I, I really like that. The, I, I like that experience as well of like being able to try something out and really try it out. And then when you, when you need a professional thing with a custom domain, it's like, all right, you're, you're using the, you're, you're probably making money on this. So uh, it's time to, you know, pay a little bit of that back. And I, I like that a lot. So, so, if, so what you're saying is like, you, you prefer not having that rename symbol feature instead of having it limited to seven. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 um, I prefer not having the micro aggression cycle of an uptick, <laughs> an uptick of hope and then a plateau of confusion and then like a downward spiral of anger. Right? If, we can, if we can remove that little interaction. End the cycle. 
yeah <laughs> but, but actually you thought about the hope of paying like when you pay then you get that hope back <laughs> oh but yeah it, I, it's see, bigger. I see <laughs> but yeah, a little bit of your soul dies yeah with a sidecar of anger I, feel, <laughs> yeah, I don't know so but yeah no it's it's all very uh, I, I should say for those that have made it this far yeah everything so far is uh, it's very early days so I'm I'm yeah I'm really stoked to get feedback I've had a few people already mm -hmm. um reach out including a couple of companies be like you know can you give us more information about xyz we're really excited but we don't understand these things and yeah. so that's that's really that's cool great. for me that feedback is super helpful right now and then yeah i should yeah. i should add while we're on the topic of pricing there's kind of like i've put in the enterprise kind of a la carte stuff at the bottom which yeah. is like there's a whole bunch yeah. of extra stuff that's possible but yeah they're conversations that we need to have at this stage including like you know source available licenses um, dedicated instances you know different different deployment models even on on-premise installs i know some companies have like really strict um, restrictions on what they can do so right. yeah again the version one kind of signals that you know these conversations and stuff are now ready to be had and i'm happy to have yeah. them and it's kind of there and and to me like if 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 i'm you know putting myself in the shoes of of someone trying to put forward Lambdera as a as an option to evaluate for a new project like I really want to like the things you've laid out and, and the pricing are are really great there and then I want to know that there's that you know like I said earlier there's not a dead end and this sort of um ability to reach the outside world from the back end um using http like sending emails through sendgrid or whatever h you know email service that's huge to me because that is an escape hatch it's an escape hatch that doesn't destroy the guarantees of lambda but it gives you the ability to uh to reach out and do what you need to in fact even like you know you you, you were saying that lambda doesn't let you call javascript from the back end but in a, in a sense you could argue that if you have http you can you just spin up a serverless function write some javascript call that serverless function from lambda's http and boom you're calling javascript but in a safe way that's not um going to pollute those guarantees so that would give me a lot of peace of mind for making those business decisions i think although there are a lot more ways that it can fail because of http like yes it's still javascript and now you oh have sure HTTP. sure yeah. oh of course well i mean if you can avoid it that's great yeah, yeah. but um if there's no way to get around the things you can do just within your Lambda sandbox, then I would start to get nervous betting the business on that or betting the project on that. And if you can, if you can reach out and you at least know you can do that if you need to. And in fact, like if, if you needed to, um, if you really reached a dead end and you're like, you know what, Lambda, it, it turns out we do need web scale. We do need 10,000 requests per second. And it, uh, you know, we've, been wildly successful and Lambda is no longer the right fit. Well, you know, maybe you start incrementally migrating things to code that you call through HTTP and eventually the whole service is migrated. But anyway, it just that one escape hatch there to, to me seems like the peace of mind that, that you would need to, to make, you know, to be able to try it out for, for a project and, and, and evaluate it as a, as a viable option. So I, I think that's great. Very exciting. And I mean, even if you have too many requests, too many users at the same time, I'm guessing that that's what the Enterprise Edition is for. Like just talking to Mario and asking for bigger servers or something like that. 
Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's a slightly fun one. So when I when I started out, the interesting thing was something like like this. <laughs> I suppose you guys resonate with this also as as um, package authors and, and library authors is like you spend so much time thinking and worrying about what could go wrong, yeah. and then like you know three years later someone's like, "Did you think about X?" And it's like, uh, <laughs> like you know, you usually. I feel like ninety nine percent of the time the answer is yes, and and mm-hmm. and, it, and I'm like it's totally fine. It makes sense. I I actually I've tried to reframe mm-hmm. the way that I feel about that feedback because sometimes it can feel really yeah. negative and really yeah. like intense, right? But I, I've I've tried to reframe it to be like, well, actually, what this user is articulating is that um, there's something they didn't find clear, right? Like it's an opportunity for me to be like, oh, okay, how did you end up worrying about this? Like the HTTP one that's come up a lot recently. Um, it's like you know how did how did people get to this? presumption that there's no http because that was always a you know it's not a it's not an Mm. escape hatch that was like that -hmm, was always mm -hmm. there from the beginning right elm functions Mm -hmm. in the back end identically to how it does in the front Mm -hmm, end we don't call mm -hmm. you know we don't say oh http is an escape hatch for elm's front end you know it's just a it's just a feature right so yeah one of the one of the ones that i've thought about a lot is scale and one of the things that kind of convinced me that maybe this wasn't such a crazy idea is um, Martin Fowler wrote about most of the ideas in the Lambda era, but under a completely different name. I found it by mm. accident ages after mm. someone else mentioned it. And he wrote about this concept of a memory image, I think is what he calls it. Um, he was talking about it in the context of, of um, event sourcing, right? So event sourcing, just really briefly, is basically this concept that rather than treating, rather than handling a request um, and then mutating your state and then forgetting about stuff that you have this alternate architecture which is you treat everything like in your system as events right you write all of these events to a stream and then your production state is basically a function of those values right so if you want to recreate your state at some point you can replay all of your event source values and if you find a bug or you try some some logic that needs to change you can basically tweak that and then replay all the events and then you know get to where you are yeah, yeah, uh, um, and I, I actually we 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 used event sourcing at, at at a past company, so I already had, was really familiar with these ideas, and they somehow like um, I think they influenced like the architecture that Lambda has today, which is literally that, right? Or uh, rather, I mean, the Elm architecture is effectively event sourcing if you if you keep a hold of the original messages. And so yeah, immediately the problem that that I I thought of was like, oh, okay, this thing's going to run out of memory, right? At some point, I'm like, well, how much? I was like, actually, I wonder what it will like. So what's like What's the kind of like addressable memory space for, for JavaScript or, or Node.js in the backend? And they've like, they've changed that. Like it used to be really capped, right? Like the two gig or four gig or something. And now it's like the addressable space of the, of, of like, of the 32 bit kind of RAM index, right? So it's, it's, ba- it's, it's effectively like unlimited. And so I was like, okay, well, what is the, what's like the maximum memory I could provide, like practically provision on a VM. And so I think Google's maximum is like 4,096 gigabytes, like four terabytes (laughs) of RAM. Really? Um, Yeah. And Amazon's like 3,900 gigabytes of RAM. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) So I don't know. Like, I mean, like that would be an absurd monthly cost, but if we're, if we're just talking about like how far Uh can a Lambda app vertically scale, yeah. I haven't yet figured figured out what that limit is. Yeah. The the quicker limit, just to nerd out on it for a little bit, the, the quicker limit that you seem to hit seems to be that just JavaScript data structures don't scale super well natively, right? If we think about like what an Elm dictionary is in its essence, like is really quite simple and straightforward, but the the JavaScript 
um, object that backs that, when it grows really, really, really large, it's quite inefficient compared to, for example, say, if you were looking at a dictionary in like Haskell um, or Rust or or even like C or C++ or something, right? Like they'd, they'd be much more constrained in JavaScript because it's a dynamic language under the hood. It has all this extra stuff that we never use, but it's kind of there and kind of grows with it, like all the object prototypes and a whole bunch of other stuff and, and weird stuff to do with string handling. So there, there are definitely like things to work on and optimize, but it's not as... Um, like, like there's definitely things to explore. It's not a dead end. So I'm excited to explore that stuff one day. And yes, you're right. You're own entirely like uh, right now, like the only people that have hit limits have basically been Martin doing, doing some crazy ambitious stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and they've been artificial limits. Like right now I've yeah. just got some artificial limits in prod just to protect um, the resources from going down unnecessarily. And yeah, the enterprise um, kind of offering is like, yeah, let's, let's just get you a giant VM and let's see how far it goes. Like that's, that's, that would be the main avenue to try for now. Really exciting stuff. So uh, I think we could easily uh, just roll right into a part two episode right now. But um, one thing I uh, one thing I wanted to touch on briefly is just like to to me, Elm is you know Lambda demonstrates why Elm is really exciting because the types of things in it it enables when you have pure functions and managed effects, and Lambda takes that and does does a lot with that premise and um like what uh like in the same way like you take this premise of lambda what if there were there was no glue code between the front end and the back end and everything was type safe including migrations and then what emerges from that and at, like you know martin stewart gave this this talk which we'll we'll link to at the most recent elm online meet down and presented this like uh, prototype of a of a, an end-to-end -end testing tool he built to do end-to-end -end testing with like real-time multi-client connections to a Lambda backend where you're running executing tests and is actually executing the Lambda backend and even replaying it in a UI and you can time travel and see the state as multiple clients interact with it in an end-to-end -end it's in, like it's one of these things, you know, Martin described it as like, I, I started pulling on these threads and it actually like came together better and better, not like rather than starting to fall apart and, and realizing all the places it didn't work. And I, I just feel like that's a really exciting thing about Lambda. I'm just curious, like, are there other things like that that are like mad science ideas or things you're pondering that like what boundaries might Lambda push down the line? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great question. So I, I feel like I can't really take credit for this because it. I think what it comes back to is is kind of what we started with, right? Like this, if we have this new terminology now, and we say like, why does this happen? I think the reason that Martin was able to be successful for that is because if we talk about semantic boundaries, like there are none, right? Like because it's so constrained. Or maybe to flip it, like mm -hmm. why yeah. why would like why would someone going on a 20-hour yak shave to build a full end-to-end -end testing framework in a language like Ruby or JavaScript seem insane? Like, you know, like right. if I was a boss right. and a team member was like, hey, you know, I know I had to do this for the deadline, but I went off and started on this thing. You know, my, I feel like my first reaction would kind of be like, that's really futile and naive. Like, you yeah. know, like there's already a testing framework out there that people have spent millions of hours, you know, like Jest or whatever it might be, like RSpec, you know? 
And it seems to me now the reason for that is because of semantic boundaries, right? Or you yeah. do a test framework for Ruby, you're dragging everything, right? Like, how am I going to test my JSON boundaries? How am I going to test HTTP? How am I going to test GraphQL? How am I going to test like Postgres? How am I going to test Active Record? Oh, there's an ORM, you know, like they're all, they've all got these subtle things in there. And it's hard for us to like, you know, I think it feels like our, our language, you, we, we say, oh, that's complex. And that's as far as we go, right? We don't, we don't have a lot of detailed words to talk about the kind like, well, I mean, we do, but we don't use them normally, I feel. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not outside of like a scientific context. So, so yeah, like because it's so constrained, there's no semantic boundaries. I, I think there's tons of really ambitious stuff. Like the stuff that Martin did is, is it, it's it, like once you see it, it's almost obvious, right? You're like, oh right. yeah, because the, because it's all constrained and they're all values. Like it makes sense. Like you can, now that he's explained it, you're like, oh, I could even conceive of how I might try to do that myself. You yeah. know, like it's, it makes sense. Um, I, I don't, I, and again, I don't think that's new. I think I can't really take credit for that. That's kind of like a property of Elm, right? And I think a lot of right. us feel that way. Like, you know, we've got, I mean, Elm pages and Elm review on this call, which I would say <laughs> you, know, you guys probably make, maybe Dylan, less you deal with a lot of messy boundaries and, and the data source stuff. But, yeah. you know, in principle, like as long as it remains in the Elm world, like it's, it's easier to be ambitious. Um, so yeah, I think mm-hmm. there's, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of cool tooling, um, available potentially i i'm nervous to talk and promise too much about stuff that might happen um but yeah for sure stuff to do um with types um stuff to do with editing data in the back end in production in a Mm. type safe way then yeah even more ambitiously perhaps stuff to do with being able to use the type information that we have about an app to automatically scale apps horizontally which is a whole topic in and of itself but that is something i would really love to explore in future I think we've talked about this privately at some point, but I don't know if it made it into Thunder, uh, about making very efficient um, requests between front-end and back-end and back-end front-end. Do you do compressions about the messages that are being sent because of what you know uh, is in there? Yeah, that's that's also a good question. So the why, so I, at the end of the day, uh, and again, this question again comes up a lot because people are curious. At the end of the day, that data, even though it's expressed, the concept of sending data between the backend and frontend is expressed as a language primitive. Like you don't see any encoding, you don't see anything there. Um, obviously, it still has to, in the backend, Lambda has to actually take that data, encode it somehow, send it somehow over some sort of protocol to the backend, and then uncode and, and transfer it. So that in Lambda is called wire which is kind of a, a just a legacy uh, naming from um kind of the early days of the project when i when i worked on some of the really early stuff along with philip hugland and yeah basically what wire does it's a it's a custom binary format um that is intended to be super compact so i think in most like for example if you send a if, if you have a custom type um, where all of the variants are just non-parameterized variants so say it was like ice cream equals you know chocolate vanilla strawberry sending one of those in json you'd at the very least mm-hmm. have to put the json bracket you'd have to put a string label oh you could i mean you could choose to like manually encode it as an integer i guess right right and so yeah and and wire that'll just be a single a single byte right that that'll get mm. compiled down to so where it gets nicer is cool. like if you have really big data structures lots of custom stuff pretty much most of the custom variants would get down to one byte so it's it's just uh one of the one of the um, releases actually was all about improving wire stuff. So if you um, if you check out the releases page on the Lambda dashboard, uh, one of them was to do with wire. Yeah, it was Alpha 12 actually, the, the release before version one. And I have an example of like how big the the wire values used to be and then what they became as I kind of optimized it and, and tweaked it. 
And so, yeah, that, that's like fully like a language implementation thing that sits behind everything. And it doesn't impact the semantics of anybody's apps, right? So that nobody needed to change anything for me to just silently make those improvements in the back end. And yeah, right, right now they're, they're focused on being really small, like so as in kind of band, minimizing bandwidth, but not necessarily minimizing latency or processing. So what I can imagine perhaps being things to explore in the future, you know, I, I'm definitely not like a, a, an expert at uh, optimizing Elm performance, but I know that there are some people in the community that really are. So what I would really love mm-hmm. to do eventually is just publish that wire format and publish mm-hmm. publicly the code gen that happens for it, because not only will it open it up to maybe people saying like, oh, actually, you know, I'd like a CPU optimized one for our use case or a different one optimized for our use case. And I think those potentially could just be settings for your apps, right? Like they don't change anything. You could just change in the dashboard and it just changes behind the hood. But yeah, the other part of it would be then opening up bigger interrupts. So, you know, I would really love there's like this Elm Elm web app, um, uh, something built by, by I'm not sure how exactly how to pronounce the name. I think it's TuneKit. Uh, is uh, is an Elm enthusiast uh, based in Singapore that I met once when I was there. Um, he did the yeah, Elm web app is basically a, a little framework for uh, serverless apps in Elm. Right, mm-hmm. so being able to make a little little Elm kind of endpoint. He's got a little API for how you do request response, and then like packaging that and, and deploying it on like an AWS serverless function. Um, so you know, right now today you could use that with Lambda or with the HTTP interface. But what I would really love is to like have that. That, that standard published. So if you have lots of different Elm things in different places, you could potentially drop in wire to get that same Lambda feeling to be like, well, I've got the Elm type there and I've got the Elm type here. I know in runtime, I'm going to use wire to communicate between the two, which means now at compile time, I can use the Elm compiler to type check between the two. Right. So yeah, that, that's another another thing that I think will shake out eventually that I'm, I'm pretty excited for. Really good stuff. Well, I think we could easily fill episode two, which actually I would love to do a part two. But for now, um, wh- where should people go to to learn more about getting started with Lambdera? Yeah, definitely. So lambdera.com is probably uh, the entry point. That's Lambdera without a B. So L-A-M-D-E-R-A. Um, it's a common typo, Lambdera, uh, which I think it, I, every time I see it, I think it's funny. I, I can hear some regrets in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, not necessarily a regret. I just, yeah, I probably didn't think through that. Probably most people intuitively know how to spell lambda with a B. So but anyway, aesthetically, I think it's more pleasing without the B. But anyway. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so lambda.com, uh, I've got uh, kind of, um, yeah, there's an entry point there to go and get, to download the, the um, Lambda compiler binary, which is just a single binary and that's it. You run it, you get your full stack local environment, no databases, no dependencies, no nothing else to install. Um, you don't even need Node.js to run it. And then, yeah, from there, there's the entry point into the dashboard. I've tried to do um, kind of a lot of documentation. There's a guide on converting Lambda apps. There's a guide on starting them from scratch. And there's examples there. Um, very recently, also, I, I posted, and with the release, I kind of I posted a Lambda real world implementation, or, yeah. or more accurately, I yeah. should say, a Lambda style, a real world implementation, because I think you know part of the real world specs, part of the real world spec, yeah. kind of mandates that you're using HTTP and JSON so that the front and uh-huh. the back can be split. <laughs> right. Uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's cool, but like that trade off gives you a, a um, certain code glue costs, right? So what I really wanted to do with Lambda real world was kind of concretely showcase so on the on the GitHub, you can actually see the two pull requests where in stages I convert, um, actually Ryan, Ryan um, 
Ryan, author of um, Elm Spa, mm-hmm. um, did an Elm Spa version of Real World, and I have a step-by-step conversion of that into Elm Spa with Lambdera Real World. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that that might interest some people to see, like, concretely, what does it take to convert, and what does that glue code actually look like? If you want to tangibly yes. point at glue code, we've been talking very hypothetically about it, but if you want to see it, you can see exactly what gets removed. And then, yeah, I, I would totally shout out um, the Discord. We have we have a ton of people in the Lambdera Discord, and they are all super friendly. Most of them now beat me to answering support requests, which is mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, really, like, super friendly and super, super enthusiastic people. So, yeah, if you want to chat about anything or ask questions or anything's unclear, yeah, that feedback is super welcome, and I'd love to have you there. Um, so, yeah, that's probably it. Great stuff. Well, thanks again, Mario, for joining us. It was a pleasure to have you on. No, thank you so much for having me. And Yarun, until next time. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs>